Good morning. I'm Joe Collins. Great to be here. We are always, as, as always, in our series titled Jesus Worth Following. And, uh, you know, uh, if you ever wonder sometimes about our announcements, and sometimes we have typos up there, uh, next Sunday is at 1030. Let me reassure you of that. It's not at 10. I know it said 10. Sometimes things like that happen. But the one thing is you can always go to our website, seemechurch.org, Shoreline. Uh, coc.com and the calendar there is always accurate so you can always trust that and uh, get information that way but you know sometimes these things happen so uh, we've been involved in a series called Jesus Worth Falling I'm gonna you know whenever I get up here this is kind of my thing this is a series I'm really invested in really love doing hopefully you're getting something out of it that's encouraging to you but the idea of the series is to go through the book of Mark and just follow Jesus where he went and learn what we can learn from these stories and these, these uh, recordings and these accounts of, of what he did. Now, as you know, our mission is to love and live like Jesus. That's what we want to do as a church, as Simi Church, as Shoreline Church. We want to love and live like Jesus. But as a minister, I have a mission. I have a purpose as well. I have a goal, and my goal is spiritual formation. That's my goal as a minister. I need Christ formed in my life, and then I need to help form Christ in your life. And so when we look at the scriptures, we're always looking through that lens. What does this tell us about Christ and what can we adopt and apply to our lives? Last Sunday or two Sundays ago when we had our, our, our lesson, we talked about doing homework. And uh, the idea there was that what we learn at church, what we, what we learn when we read our Bible in, in private, what we learn when we go to retreats or when we go to seminars, what we learn there. The goal is to take that and apply it at home, at work, in, in school, you know, in your daily life. That's doing the homework. Today, the next step in the process of forming Christ in us, of becoming like Christ, of being spiritually formed, is we have to be okay that sometimes there's hard work. As a matter of fact, sometimes there's lessons that are just hard to take. But we have to be willing to take and learn a tough lesson. So there was this lawyer. And uh, he was driving out in the country. He's a big city lawyer from L.A. And he's out in the country, and he's driving, and he comes to a, an intersection with a stop sign. And instead of stopping at a stop sign, he, he does the California stop. He just kind of rolls through the stop sign. Now, it's safe. There's nobody around. He's in the middle of nowhere. Sure enough, he goes through that intersection, lights come up behind him, little country sheriff pulls him over. Comes up, knocks on the window, says, hey, I'd like to see your license and registration. And the lawyer says, what for? The sheriff says, well, you didn't, you didn't come to a complete stop at the stop sign. And the lawyer says, look, I'm a lawyer from the big city. I know the law. I slowed down. No one was coming. I was totally safe. After all, that's what stop signs and signals are for anyways. It's really about safety. I did nothing unsafe. And the sheriff says, well, okay, but you didn't stop at the stop sign. So let me see your license and registration. So the lawyer says, look, if you can prove to me, if you can show me the legal difference between slowing down and stopping, I will happily give you my license, registration, and you can write me a ticket. So the, the sheriff thinks about it for a minute. He says, okay, I think I can take that challenge. He said, do me a favor, sir, step out of your car. So the guy gets out, 
And the sheriff pulls out his baton and he starts beating the lawyer with his nightstick. And the lawyer starts yelling, stop it, stop it. And the sheriff says, do you want me to stop or do you want me to slow down? <laughs> Turn with me to Mark chapter 8. If you don't have your Bible, uh, it's on the screen for you. Sometimes lessons are hard to learn, aren't they? And sometimes we do need to get beat with a stick to learn these lessons. Today we're going to talk about learning hard lessons. Mark chapter 8, I'll pray before we read. Father, thanks for this time to be together and thanks for this chance to come before you. Speak to us through your word. We're so grateful for the teaching and the guidance that you give us. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Mark 8, and again, if you don't have your Bible with you, we have the, the words on the screen. It says, about this time, another large crowd had gathered, and the people ran out of food again. Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. They have been here with me for three days, and they have nothing left to eat. <clears throat> if I send them home hungry, they will faint along the way, for some of them have come a long way. If you've been with us through the series the last several weeks, you know that for the last couple of years, Jesus has basically zigzagged all through the land of Galilee. If you look on our simple map, you'll see Galilee at the top of the map around the, the Sea of Galilee, and there's the province of Galilee. And Jesus and his disciples spent about two and a half years literally visiting every town and village in Galilee, probably more than once, preaching repentance, practicing grace letting people belong before they believed, calling people to take God at his word. And they did this for two and a half years, and Jesus had this amazing following. And at one point, he was over there near Bethsaida on the northwest, north, yeah, west side of the, or northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, and, and he fed 5,000 men, which would have been about 20 to 25,000 people, miraculously, five loaves and two fish. It was the high point of his ministry. People from everywhere were coming to hear him. I mean, he was the top dog at that point. I mean, he had truly replaced John the Baptist as the spokesman of Israel. Afterwards, they tried to make him king. He got out of there in a hurry. He zipped across the lake, landed on the western shore near Magdala there, and then spent some time there, and then he headed out westward toward a place called Tyre and Sidon. Now, if you look at our next map, you'll see them there. They're on the, on the coast. They're out of Galilee. This is Gentile territory now. This is the land of Phoenicia, modern-day Lebanon. And when he goes to Tyre, he, a, he meets a woman there, a Syrophoenician woman, and he heals her daughter. Remember, she, she said even the crumbs that fall from the table, the, the, the little dogs, the pets eat. And, and Jesus was so impressed with that faith and that, that attitude towards, uh, towards his provision that he healed her daughter instantly. Then he made his way up to Sidon, and somewhere near Sidon, near the temple there of Ekmon, where people were being, uh, where, where it was believed that was, there was healing powers there, Jesus healed a deaf and mute guy. And remember the, the very touching story of Jesus gesturing to the man, communicating to him in his language, letting him know what was going to happen and who was going to do the healing. And he heals this man. And then Jesus leaves. And if you can see it, it's a faint red line there. There's this long line where he kind of arcs down and goes all the way back down to the Sea of Galilee, somewhere uh, near the, uh, the border there. I think that says Gersa there. I can't see that from here. But he's right around that area. He might even have been in the Decapolis. We don't know for sure whether he was near the border or inside the land. 
But this is where he heads. And apparently, when you read the story, it seems like this wasn't the, the intention all along. This journey was a planned journey by Jesus. Instead of heading down to Judea and to the city of Jerusalem and taking over Israel, so to speak, he goes this way to the Gentiles. <clears throat> I want to talk for a minute about the background. Now, I know, and I've said this before, I'm a history guy, and some people just, they don't like history, and that's okay. You can take a nap. You have a couple minutes here to take a nap. Uh, I will wake you back up when we're done. But if you, if you will indulge me and listen, the history matters. When you read the Bible, the content, the, the context and the social background matters. It helps us understand what Jesus was doing. It's actually really important to properly understanding the scripture. So here's the background. The Decapolis was known as the ten towns. That's what the word in Greek, the, the Greek word is Decapolis, but in Hebrew it's ten towns. And it was made up of ten more or less cities. There, you know, sometimes there was more, sometimes there were less. And these cities were founded by ex-soldiers of Alexander the Great's army. Prior to Jesus, Alexander had basically conquered this area. And some of his soldiers had settled and created these towns. And when Pompey came in and he invaded and he conquered the whole land in 64 BC, he, he sort of put all of this area under Roman control. And so they called this area where these ten towns were the Decapolis. And they, they sort of formed one province, but it was made up of these, these individual towns. Now, Alexander, when he conquered the world, he had a dream. His dream was to Hellenize the world. We've talked about what this means, and, and, and basically the, the, in, in the, the, the minimum way we could describe Hellenizing the, 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 the world was that everyone spoke Greek. That's basically what Alexander did. But, but the truth be told, it was more than just Greek language. There was religion, there was theology, there was philosophy, there was education, there was the view of the world, there was political uh, structures. It was all Greek. The Romans, when they conquered uh, Alexander the Great's former territory, they just kept his practice. They bought into his dream of Hellenizing the world. So by the time we get to Jesus, the environment that he lived in was heavily Hellenized. It was Greek in language, culture, theology, philosophy, religion. In every possible facet of life, the Greek influence was present. Now in Galilee, where Jesus lived, Galilee is kind of derivative of the word Gentile. And, it, and Gentile means non-Jewish. And so the, the region of Galilee was a heavily Jewish populated area, but it also had a lot of Gentiles, and so it was very Hellenized, even for a Jew living there. They were immersed in Greek culture, religion, uh, philosophy, whether they practiced it or not, they were aware of it. Even down in Judea, in the, in the staunch Jewish area, the word Judea means Jew. They called the area Judea because that's where the Jews were, even there. Hellenization kind of made inroads. There were even buildings, Greek-style buildings and temples down there, even in Jerusalem. They built stadiums for, for the games, physical contests. They built gymnasiums for, for the growth of people intellectually. They were like educational centers, but also physical. They built temples where they worshiped God. They had theaters all over the place where they, where they, uh, where they performed Greek myth mythological stories. It was heavily 
Hellenized. And when Jesus left and went into Phoenicia, Tyre, Sidon, and then all the way down to the capitalists, it only got even more so. And you can imagine what it must have been like for these 12 disciples or anyone else that was following Jesus to go into these territories. And, and they were just fish out of water. It was truly all Greek to them. The thing about Hellenism, though, that we need to understand is that it's very humanistic at its core. The human body is, is, is the paradigm of beauty. You ever go to a, a museum and you see the Greek statues? You ever notice that they're naked and they're perfect? That's what they're worshiping. They're celebrating. That was their ideal. I didn't fit in at that time. God had me born now. Wouldn't have had my statue up there like that. Amen. Amen. <laughs> human wisdom was the ultimate in wisdom and believe it or not pleasure was probably the biggest goal of all does this sound familiar do you not sometimes look at the world around you and go it feels all greek to me it just seems so immersed in this same kind of philosophy, this same kind of environment. This is the world that Jesus lived and breathed in. This is the world that, that faithful Jews tried to raise their kids in, and they tried to protect them, and they tried to educate them, and they tried to help them, prevent them from being you know, indoctrinated. But it was a losing battle in many cases. You know, the, the town of Hippo, one of the, one of the ten uh, cities in the Decapolis, was right on the, the coast of the Sea of Galilee, kind of on the west, southwest side. And it was up on a hill, and it could be seen from all over the Sea of Galilee. You could imagine these Jewish fishermen and followers of Jesus working there on the shore, working on the, on the sea, and seeing these beautiful buildings, and, the, and the, the whole just, like, it must have just been a, a beacon of, man, what's going on over there? It just must have been so enticing. And now, we, we talk about Pharisees, but now we can be a little sympathetic to them. In the Bible, they, they tend to be on the wrong side a lot. But, but let's be a little sympathetic. Now, we understand why a sect called the Pharisees came about. Because they were trying to protect the faith from this encroachment, from this, this infection called Hellenism, humanism, the, 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 the seek of pleasure. You and I all know how tempting and how compelling that is. And so the Pharisees, they, they got into making rules and more rules because they were just trying to protect people from this, this creeping crud that was coming into Israel. We think about a group like the, the Zealots. Jesus had a zealot as one of his followers. The Zealots, their, their, their job was similar to the Pharisees. They didn't want any encroachment from this Hellenization. They didn't want this infection from the world around them. But the Zealots decided to deal with it with violence. The Pharisees, they made a bunch of rules and laws to try to protect people. But the Zealots, they, they advocated violence, flat-out war against Hellenization, against these Gentile influences. And then you have the Essenes. Not mentioned in Scripture, but they were present. John the Baptist may have interacted with the Essenes. They were the ones that, that we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. That was done by the Essenes. 
and, and hidden in caves. And their way of dealing with it was to run away and hide in the hills or in the wilderness. They just created societies that secluded themselves from this. And then you have the Sadducees. Easy to remember because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And so when you died, you were just dead. And so they were sad, you see. <laughs> but the Sadducees, they just embraced Hellenism. They just became Greek. They just allowed the compromise. They tended to be more political and it was more shrewd to just, you know, went in Rome. I don't know what you do to try to prevent the creeping crud of the world around you into your home and into infecting your family and your children. But I know I think I've tried just about a little of all of these things. As I, as, I, as I get older in the faith and as I see more of what the world and I look at the world, I go, man, it really is just, a, it is the enemy and it is just trying to get into my home, into my head, into my kids' heads, into their hearts. It is so infectious and we try to do everything we can, a little bit of everything to try to keep it out, protect ourselves from what's going on out there. Maybe some of us want to just run away and hide and go live in a, a mountaintop somewhere where no one's going to bug us. Others of us want to create rules and boundaries and draw lines everywhere so we know where we're safe and this is, this is our safe zone. Some of us might want to pick a few fights out there. And then some of us just give in. It's such a difficult battle. You just get tired and you give in. You know, Jesus did none of that. Jesus left Galilee, and he went to the Hellenized part of the world. He went to the Gentile turf, to their territory, to Tyre, to Sidon, and to the Decapolis. He just entered it. We have two stories in Mark of Jesus going in to enemy territory, of engaging it directly. The first one we talked about already, it was in Mark chapter 5, I believe it was. You may remember Jesus was teaching on the Sea of Galilee, he was in a boat on the western shore. He got done teaching. He dropped the mic. He said, let's go. We got to go across the lake. They went across the lake, straight across to the Decapolis side of the Sea of Galilee. They got off the boat. It was night. And a demoniac came running down out of the cemetery to attack him. And he healed the man. They had some conversation. Then he cast the demons out into a herd of pigs. You might remember that. And for the next 20 minutes, everybody stood there and watched as pigs just ran down the hill into the Sea of Galilee, drowning themselves. And then the people came out and were like, what's going on? And they said, go away. That's how they reacted to Jesus. Go away. And so within, he, he literally spent a couple hours on the ground in the Decapolis, healed a guy, maybe two, depending on the different, different accounts of the story, two, one or two guys that were demon-possessed. That was all he could do. Got back in the boat and went back across the lake. And in this story, we've already, we've already talked about it. He left Galilee, he went to Tyre, healed a Syrophoenician woman's daughter, went to Sidon, healed the deaf man, and now he's over in the Decapolis, and we're about to see what he does there, but it is incredible. But you know what I'll tell you? You know what Jesus did in every one of these cases? Do you know how he protected himself from the creeping crud of Hellenism, from the creeping crud of the world around him? Do you know what he did? He loved people. That's how he did it. That was his defense. It wasn't about making more rules. It wasn't about picking a fight. 
It wasn't about withdrawing from society altogether, and it certainly wasn't about compromising and joining. He just loved the people. He was willing to go into their territory and be a light. You can try every way possible to keep the world out to train your children, to protect your family. We can try to protect the church. We can build walls and borders, and we can try to keep people out, but I will tell you, they will all fail. The only way is to live and love like Jesus. It's the only way to deal with the world around us. It's our only option. Verse 4. His disciples replied, how are we supposed to find enough food to lead them out here in the wilderness? Jesus asked, how much bread do you have? Seven loaves, they replied. So Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, thanked God for them, and broke them into pieces. He gave them to his disciples who distributed the bread to the crowd. A few small fish were found, too. So, they, so Jesus also blessed these and told the disciples to distribute them. Now, I don't know uh, if you've been with us. Hopefully you've been through the series and you've kind of heard... Um, the last several weeks, but you might remember this story sounds really familiar, doesn't it? It's like deja vu. Did somebody change the matrix? Did we just have a replay of something here? And, and, and it is very similar to a story in Mark chapter 6. Literally uh, weeks, months at most before Jesus was on the western side, uh, the eastern side of the, the Sea of Galilee, I, I referred to it in, in the intro, in the welcome, in the beginning there, and he fed 5,000 men, some 20 to 25,000 people. And if you read that account in Mark 6, and you read the account here in Mark 8, it looks very, very similar. So similar that people think they're the same story, just kind of repeated for effect. But I will tell you, there are major differences. They're not the same story. This is actually another mass miracle that Jesus performed. A couple of things to note that are different. For one, in this story, in Mark 8, the crowds had been following Jesus for three days. In the other story, in Mark 6, Jesus got off the boat and the crowd sort of showed up all at once. Another key difference, and there are many, that it was Jesus that recognized that the crowd was hungry, not the disciples. You might remember in the other story, it was the disciples said, hey, send them away. We can't feed them. They got to go find some food. But in this case, it was Jesus that initiated the conversation. Another key difference is in this story, there were seven loaves and a few fish. In the other story, there were five loaves and two fish. In the other story, the first story, Jesus had them sit in groups of like 50. In this story, he just had them all sit down. There was no breaking up of groups. But probably the most compelling reason to see this as a unique miracle in and of itself, separate from the other feeding, is the fact that in verse 18 and 19, or 19 and 20 of this same chapter, Jesus says they're two different occurrences. He actually says, don't you remember when I fed five, and don't you remember when I fed 4,000? He actually identifies it. We'll look at it in our study next time. So without a doubt, there's no mistaking it. This is a second mass miracle. What a nice phrase to have in our day and age when we think of mass shootings and mass destruction. Isn't it nice that Jesus did mass miracles? That's what we get when we get Jesus So the question then is this, why did they ask, how are we supposed to feed these people? I find that fascinating. I've read this story again and again and again, and I'm like, what is happening here? 
It was weeks, maybe months ago that they saw him miraculously feed 5,000 men, 20 to 25,000 people. Now there's a, another thousands of people. We're going to find out later it was 4,000, so we're talking 15 to 20,000 people. And, and why would they, if they saw him do it once before, why are they having a hard time seeing it again? Like, it's almost as if it never happened, like they forgot. And then I thought about it, and I realized, you know, I forget a lot of stuff. Even big stuff. How many of us, if God has done amazing things, and we've honestly forgotten about them? We have to actually sit down and kind of retell our story just to remember the amazing things that God has done. We, it, it is human to forget. It's one of the reasons why studying the Bible and sharing your faith with people is so important because you're constantly retelling your story. You're constantly reminding of all the amazing things God does, and it deepens your faith. But, you know, there's another reason I think that's possible, and, and I'll, tell, I'll, I'll explain it like this. My son, Hunter, and I, if you don't know my son, Hunter, he is awesome. He's going in the Army, Army Reserve, in July. He's a great guy. Well, he's also into something called parkour. Now, I don't know if you know what parkour is, but parkour is like a mix between gymnastics and cat burglary. That's really what it is. Like you, like you jump off windows to other windows or, you know, buildings to buildings. That's really what it all is. So he takes me to his gym that is a parkour gym. Never mind that I'm almost 50 and 50 pounds overweight. I mean, not, never mind that detail, but he thinks I'm going to go do what he's going to do. Two knee surgeries, bad back. So I go, and uh, we get there, and he's like, okay, Dad, you got to do this. And, and it's like run up this ramp, and then there's like a wall that's really high, and you got to jump up the wall. I get like halfway up the ramp. That's about it. <laughs> I walk back down, and uh, he goes, okay, let's try this instead, and he wants to teach me the most basic parkour move. Does anybody know what it is? It's called a cat. Does anybody know what a cat is? So imagine if I'm here, and I want to jump onto the wall here. I jump, I grab the light fixture, and I put my feet on the wall, and I kind of land like a cat on the wall, Right? Well, that's fairly easy to do. Almost all of us can do that. If we had a bar here and you just sit and you jump, you can kind of grab it, put your feet on the wall and kind of hang like that with your feet on the wall. But no, 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 that's not parkour. So parkour is I'm standing on something this high <clears throat> and I'm up here and there's about 10 feet of empty space and then there's a wall and there's a bar here. So you're jumping down and then you have to catch the bar and, and land on the wall you know, so Hunter's like, oh, this is easy. No problem. It took me 20 minutes to convince myself that I could do this. I stood there. Okay, okay, okay. Okay. 20 minutes. Okay. Okay. Finally, finally did it. Jumped off, nailed it. Instantly twisted my ankle, but nailed it. Hunter's like, that was great. I'm like, yeah, I was all excited to get down. I'm like, yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> so then he takes me, we go to this thing, we jump into a foam pit, it's really high. Have you ever done this? You know, it's fun. You jump into a foam pit, it's fun. You're up high. The problem with foam pits is like, they're like quicksand. <laughs> so I just went to the bottom. <laughs> Hunter is like Legolas in, in uh, Lord of the Rings on the snow. He's just like running across. <laughs> I'm sinking in the foam. I can't get out. You lose your shoe, your socks come off, you're like, 
what is happening? It's like sucking you down into the bottom of the foam pit. He's laughing. He had to throw a mat in like a boat so I could climb up onto it and then drag me out. So then I said, I want to do the cat again. I, 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 that was awesome. I really want to keep doing that one. So I go back to the thing. It took me another 20 minutes to believe I could do it. I just did it 20 minutes ago. Maybe that's what the disciples were struggling with. Maybe they just didn't believe he could do it again. We've all been there. How many times has God done something in your life and it was amazing and then a, a round two comes around and you're like, oh, he ain't going to do it this time. You're in the foam pit. You know, I, I got to kick it out. <laughs> That's certainly a possibility. But there's a third possibility that really jumped out at me in, in studying this passage that just like lit me up. And here it is. And I'm going to talk about this for a minute. And I really want you to hear this. I don't think they expected him to do it again. Now think about that for a minute. These guys knew Jesus. They were with him for some two and a half years. In those days when you followed a rabbi, you left family and home and you lived with the guy. In their case, he actually moved in with them. You might remember that in Capernaum and then they ended up with a hole in the roof and all these other things. But Jesus moved in with them and they followed him everywhere he went. And, and I don't think they forgot about the feeding the 5,000. I just don't think they thought he would do it again. So then I got to thinking about that. Well, what would be that reason? Why would they not think that? Why would they go, man, I don't think Jesus is going to do this again. Or why would they approach this so differently? And here's, here's what dawned on me like a lightning bolt. And I hope you're open to hearing this. Jesus didn't always fix people's problems with a miracle. Jesus isn't going to fix your problems with a miracle. It's not the norm. Now, we read the Bible, and we see, you know, in a few pages, Jesus' life story, and it's like miracle, 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 miracle. And he did a lot of miracles. But if you think about it over two and a half years, there was a lot of just sitting around and talking and walking and stubbing their toes and whatever, right? There was just a lot of everyday life. And Jesus didn't just always fix everything with a miracle. How many of you are praying to win the lottery? I have prayed to win the lottery. I have a lottery ticket in my wallet right now. I was talking to a brother this morning. He had two in his hand. I'll tell you what. I don't think Jesus is going to let me win the lottery. Because me winning the lottery wouldn't form Christ in me. Jesus wants us to become like him. That's a, that's a long-term proposition. That's an over-the-time proposition. I, uh, I think about Tony and Candy Strait. All of us know and love them. They're an amazing couple. This is no secret because it's all over Facebook. <laughs> but they were in massive amounts of debt. I don't remember the exact numbers, over 100,000 or something like that, about that. 110. And uh, it took how many months to get out of it? Three years for crying out loud. 
yeah, it's great to clap for them now, but they had to, to skimp and to save and to be frugal for three years to get out of that debt. Lived in tiny places, didn't have new cars, went to thrift shops for their clothes. And, you know, my wife went with Candace, and she said it was the funnest thing ever because Candace is, like, having a blast. Look at this, look at this, look at this. It's a dollar, it's 50 cents, look at this. You know, she wasn't walking around, you know, with a, a hood on and a stick hitting herself in the head all through. I'm miserable, I'm miserable, I'm out of debt. No, no, no. They embraced the challenge, and guess what happened? Christ has been formed in them. They weren't bailed out. Sometimes we want to be bailed out. Jesus, just bail me out. And you know, it's awesome when he does. But that's really not what he does. If you want Christ, if you want to be, uh, uh, if you want to have Christ formed into you, you have to be formed into Christ. And that's, the hard lesson. That's the being beat with a stick every now and then. That's the, that's the deal we made when we stepped out of the car with Jesus. Okay, show me that your way is the right way. Okay, boom, boom, boom. I am going to form you into me. And it takes time. It takes pressure. It takes long-suffering. It takes perseverance. And I think that's what the disciples knew and understood. And it's why they just didn't even think about him doing another miracle. We'll just figure it out. Something will happen. You know what Tony and Candace did? Was not a miracle. But it was miraculous. And when Christ is formed in you, it is not going to be because of a miracle, but it will be miraculous. At the end of the process, we will look back and go, only by God, only because of God, it's a miracle, and we will have been changed. Verse 8. They ate as much as they wanted. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven large baskets of leftover food. There were about 4,000 men in the crowd that day, and Jesus sent them home after they had eaten. Immediately after this, he got into a boat with his disciples and crossed over to the region of Dal-Manutha. The Bible says here that Jesus went ahead and performed the miracle, and amen, because he does do miracles. And in this case, he fed 4,000 men, some fifteen to 20,000 people. And like with all miracles of Jesus, they always go way beyond expectations, don't they? I mean, everyone ate and was completely satisfied. And in this story, there were seven basketfuls left over. Now, this is an interesting word because the word here for basket is not the same word for basket that was used in the story of the feeding 5,000. The word there was the word for like lunch pail, small basket. The word here is the word for big basket. In the first I mean, a basket you could put a person in. In the first feeding, Jesus fed 5,000 men, some 20 to 25,000 people. There were 12 baskets left over, clearly handed to the disciples so that they could know what, what they were capable of by faith. 
And brothers and sisters, by faith, God can do amazing things through every one of us. And we, we got to remember that we've been given baskets of faith. And wherever we go, we got to hold on to those baskets and be reminded of what God can do. Because it's vital to our ability to navigate this world we live in. And I think Jesus handed those guys those baskets and he wanted them to remember that. But there was also a bigger symbolism. We didn't talk about it then, but there was a bigger symbolism going on with 12 baskets. In Jewish history, the Jewish people was made up of 12 tribes, 12 sons of a man named Israel. And those 12 baskets, I don't think it was lost on the disciples that there were 12 of them. And that that represented something to the people of Israel as a whole. That by putting their faith in Jesus Christ, they could do amazing things. So what's the, what's the meaning of the seven big baskets? Well, when Moses first entered into the promised land, or with Joshua, when the, when the Israelites many thousands of years ago first entered into the promised land, there were seven Gentile nations in existence in the promised land. They were already there. And part of the Jewish history was coming into the promised land and expelling those nations because they were evil and there was a judgment from God upon them. And that was their job to, to conquer the promised land and turn it into the nation of Israel, this light, this city on a hill, this shining light in the darkness. I firmly believe that Jesus was in the Decapolis. He was in Gentile territory. And these seven baskets were symbolic of seven Gentile nations that were already there. And the message was the same to them that it was to the Israelites. With Jesus, putting your faith in Jesus is the answer. You can imagine this. Jesus is there. He's in the Decapolis, or he's very close. And the crowd is mostly Gentile at this point. And he does this amazing miracle, validating his ministry and his message to the, to the non-Jewish world. And then there's these seven large baskets left over. And they represent... Gentile nations. Jesus' message was for the Jew and for the Gentile. And that's why the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Sadducees, and the Zealots got it wrong. Because they thought it was just for them. And so it was all about protecting what they had. But Jesus' way was so different. It was loving. It was open. It was inviting everyone in. But here's something even cooler in this story. Remember, he's in the Decapolis. Just a few months before, maybe a year or so before, Jesus had stepped into the Decapolis for the first time. He was only there for maybe a couple hours. And he healed the demoniac in the tombs, sent the, the, the demons into the pigs. And when the, when the townspeople came and said, Jesus, get out of here, because they were freaked out, the demoniac wanted to go with him. And I want you to listen to what Jesus said to this man. Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. All the people were amazed. Is it possible that this crowd of 4,000, a lot of them Gentiles, were there because of one guy? Who had been changed forever by Jesus Christ? Who had had his whole life changed? And then he went out and did the hard work. He did exactly what Jesus told him to do. And he went to all 10 cities talking about Jesus. 
And so when Jesus shows up, there's now a crowd of people interested in what he has to say. Not Jews, Gentiles. You know, God has the same mission for each one of us that he had for that demoniac. He's preparing people, and now it's your job to be sent out among the non-believers, not to hide from them, not to protect yourself from them, not to go beat them up and get in fights with them, not to withdraw and live in a commune somewhere or up on a, in a tree somewhere. That's not the plan. The plan is to go and engage everybody around you, every non-believer, and you engage them and love them. You tell them about Jesus Christ. And then there will be these moments where these people will come and miracles will happen. Lives will be changed. Stories will be rewritten. Destinies will be forever altered because of you. Because of me. God has prepared people for us to go and talk to and to teach them about the love and life of Jesus Christ. There is no easy way to do this. I wish that we could just miraculously walk out and snap our fingers and a crowd would show up. I can't even get you guys to do that. <laughs> At least not on time. Get a little, little dig, little dig right there. It's hard work. It's hard lessons. We've got to let people go through them. We've got to sometimes let Jesus beat on them with a stick. He's beating on people right now with a stick, trust me. But when we do this, when we let Christ be formed in us, when we embrace the plan, and we go out into the world around us, and we love the world around us, they will come. They will come. And we will see the miracles happen. At this time, we're going to stand up. We don't have a closing song, so I'm going to close us out in a prayer, and you'll be dismissed. Father, it is awesome to look at your word and to be inspired by it, to be motivated and excited by it. It's so incredible to know all the ways in which you work in people's lives. And we're so grateful for what you've done for us and for our lives. We pray now, help us to leave here renewed, committed, dedicated to being formed into Christ so Christ can be formed in every one of us. And then we can help others. It's in Jesus' name, amen. amen. You are dismissed.